Welcome to the first episode of the new Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim, and I'll be your host. For the most part, this will be a collection of teachings from Steve Stewart. Steve is the founder and president of Impact Nations, an organization committed to partnering with leaders in the developing world to rescue lives and transform communities by engaging people in practical and supernatural expressions of the kingdom of God. Steve has been preaching and teaching for over 35 years, first as a pastor and now as the spiritual father of pastors and leaders all over the world. Steve's traveling schedule will probably prevent us from producing a weekly podcast for the entire year. Instead, we will release one podcast a week for a season, probably 10 to 12 episodes. Then we'll take a break until we catch up with him for long enough to collect another season of recordings. From time to time, I will sit down with Steve to discuss questions that may come up from his teaching. I'll certainly have some theological questions of my own, but we'd like your participation too. If you have questions, email them to podcast at impactnations.com, and I'll be sure to ask your questions during one of our Q&A episodes. And now, on to the show. We begin episode one with the first of Steve's series on the Gospel of John. This recording was originally done on Facebook Live, so the audio isn't perfect, but the content is excellent. So, without further ado, here is John's prologue. We're going to break it into two parts tonight, the prologue, and uh, we'll start with, of course, chapter one. The prologue is the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, and uh, I'm going to just give the first four verses for now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. I've shared with you before that I've been on a, a real journey, especially the last couple of years, on the depths of Christ and the mystery of Christ. And it feels like almost whatever I preach on, you know, when I'm in different churches, what comes out of me is variations on this whole thing on the mystery of Christ. So let's... You'll bear with me tonight. This will be, as I say, probably the most theological session. But um, if you can stay with me, I think it will give you, I hope it will give you a really good foundation for all that will follow in this remarkable, remarkable gospel. Um, As I've shared before, uh, John's gospel uh, stands unique from the first three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, called the Synoptics, because it was written a generation later. And it was written when, when other issues had, had risen up in the church that did, did not even exist uh, 30 years before, um, probably 40 years before. So let's talk a little bit about the prologue. Uh, it's perhaps the richest passage in all of the Gospels. Uh, St. Augustine, I think I've told you guys before, called the prologue the most sublime words ever penned in the history of the world. Uh, John wrote this as a preface to his gospel, and it's, it's like an overture. Any of you have been to musicals or maybe even an opera? Uh, it really is, and, and I use that because there's, it's written in the form of a hymn. Uh, it might even have been sung, but it certainly was hymnal in the way he structured it, and it introduces themes that John will develop throughout this whole gospel. Um, 
it, it's it's kind of a mystical hymn, which mystical really just means uh, uh, the experience of God, experiencing Him, um, and it encapsulates the whole gospel. Tonight we're going to look at two main themes that he introduces. We're not even going to look at all of the prologue because we'd be here for too many hours, but we're going to look at two main themes. Jesus as the eternal God, including his pre-existence, um, meaning his existence in Scripture uh, centuries before um, before his physical birth, and secondly, his incarnation. And I think that the more time that each of us give to meditating on the truths in these verses, the deeper our understanding of all that follows. I've got a few areas that I kind of just meditate on. I come back to again and again. One of them I often have congregations read together. We did this this past Sunday when I was speaking in Albuquerque. And that's Colossians 1, 15 to 20, which is a remarkable hymn about Christ. But the second one is right here, uh, the, uh, the prologue. So let's begin... With the first section I want to talk about tonight is is the Son of God, the Logos, and uh, so John opens with this clear declaration, verses one and two. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some of you guys remember that I said John doesn't waste a single word; he doesn't waste a single phrase. Everything is just packed with meaning. So I want to unpack some of that. Uh, for the next few minutes. He starts with, in the beginning. He purposely opens with a parallel to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, it's about the creation story in Genesis. But now, what John is saying from his very first words is this is about the new creation in Christ. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is the Son of God. John reinforces this again and again, 32 times, just in this Gospel. He talks about the Son of God. I'll give you a couple of examples just in the, uh, in the first chapter. Uh, John the Baptist said, I have seen and I have testified that this is the Son of God. That's verse 34. Verse 49, Nathaniel says, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. The other thing I want us to notice when he says, In the beginning, he's... He's giving us that first little framework to talk about Christ before creation. And this just develops all the way through uh, this, uh, this gospel. So in the beginning was the Word. He, just, he doesn't explain it. There's no starting point. And he's emphasizing uh, Christ's eternal existence. He just starts, was the Word. Now, you, many of you know that the Greek word he used was logos. And it's, it's a key, key word to study. But logos, yes, it, it is, can be translated, should be translated uh, in our English language as the word. But one of the things we, we have to deal with, um, especially, I think, in the Gospels, but we have to deal with it in the New Testament, is that that Greek, Koine Greek, is much richer than English. That one word has layers of meaning. Uh, I'll give you an example. Many of you have heard me teach uh, in uh, Mark 1, 41, where the, the leper says, if you're willing, 
you can make me whole. And Jesus says, I am willing. He says a word, tela, which means not just volition or willingness, but pleasure and even delight. That's just an example of what I'm talking about here. So this word, logos, of course it, it includes word, but really it means more than that. It means the idea or the thought behind the spoken word. Logos includes the vision, the plan, and the wisdom that inspired the spoken word. That word wisdom is really key in, uh, in this gospel. In the Old Testament, wisdom is often a representation of God, especially the Son of God. The, the, the most classic example that comes to me <coughs> is uh, Proverbs chapter 8. You can, you know, I don't have time to go there, but you go on your own and you can look. And wisdom is a personification of the Son of God. And wisdom and the Word both describe God's activity. So in the beginning was the Word. Uh, was the Word, grammatically, can also be, and maybe should be, the Word was. It's, it's very similar to that phrase that uh, John uses uh, 24 times, which is, I am. Remember the classic, he says, before Abraham was, I am. But he says it 24 times in that gospel. The word simply was. Just like God, when Moses says, well, who should I tell him? He didn't give him a big explanation. He just said, I am. John develops this pre-creation theme throughout his whole gospel. We're going to really see this in chapter 8. Um, we can also see it in, in what's called the priestly prayer. John 17 is that whole chapter of, of uh, Christ praying to the Father. And um, this issue of pre-existence, um, the eternal Son of God, just gets louder and louder through this gospel. Let me give you an example here. In John 17, 5, he's praying. He says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. John is taking us deeper and deeper and deeper into who this Christ really is. So he says, in the beginning was the Word, and then he says the Word was with God. It's interesting, it's a really important phrase, because what he's saying is the Son is with God, He is a distinct person in the Trinity. And again, these are the first seeds that he's planting that will grow and grow through this gospel. And one of these seeds is the eternal communion between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm in the Father, you're in me, I'm in you. Uh, this is extremely Trinitarian. So, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. So that's about communion, relationship that's going to develop. And then he says the Word was God. John is saying that the Son of God is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, and that He has the same divinity. He's not a smaller version. I'll develop that later in the Incarnation. He has the same divinity as the Father. Um, remember, Philip says in uh, chapter 14, just show us the Father, that'll be enough. And he says, Philip, don't you get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? 14.9. Um, it's interesting because we start by saying uh, the Word was God, and then 
right near the end of this gospel, chapter 20, 28, um, I think it's Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. It's like a bookend on this thing. So I took a little bit of time to un unpack three little phrases within a phrase, but I think this stuff, folks, I, the more I'm studying this, the richer it's getting and the deeper it's getting. And, and I'll say it again, I'll probably end up saying it several times tonight. With everything in me, I encourage you, just spend time in John 1, 1 to 18, because it is, it is so rich and we will never, ever exhaust it. So, let's go on to verse 3. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. So, he doesn't just say the world was created through him. He says everything was created. All things were created. It's bigger than the world. Uh, I told you before that a word that is used in, um, in the Gospels, in the, especially in John Cosmos, with a K actually, but uh, we always seem to translate that as world, but it means what it says, cosmos. It means the greater creation. Um... So, the Word, the Son of God, is uh, not only co-equal, as I said, and co-eternal, He's also co-creator. And if anybody's making notes, Psalm 33, 16 is a great example of this. By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the host of them, by the breath of His, and all the host of them, by the breath of His mouth. This was understood early on in the early church, they understood that the Son of God created everything. He was the one who created it. Uh, Colossians 1.16, for everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth. That's speaking of Christ. Verse 4, life was in Him, and that life was the light of man. Now, only God has life in Himself. All the rest of us are just the recipients of His life, the reflection of His life. So He's saying life was in Him, Christ, the Son of, the Son of God, and that life was the light of man. This is another declaration of the divinity of Christ. Was the light of man. Humanity is introduced as the recipient of divine life. That's the first mention in the prologue. Everything's focused on Christ, but we get a few times, and this is the first one. Humanity is the recipient of this divine life. And by participating in the life of the Son of God, we become children of God. In fact, we're not going to go there today, but, but verse 12 says He gives us the right, actually it means the authority, um, to be called children of God. And it's a verse that I think we also need to meditate on. We do not operate in an understanding of our true authority. And our true authority is because we are hidden in Christ. We are in Christ. 164 times Paul says we're in Christ. He never stops saying it. So, so who Christ is, we're hidden in that. Today's episode is brought to you by Journeys of Compassion. Since 2005, 
Impact Nations has led over 60 journeys to 18 nations around the developing world. More than 1,500 people have registered for one of these trips. A Journey of Compassion is a 10 to 12 day adventure in which people just like you get to put the gospel into action. When you go on a journey, you may find yourself serving in a mobile medical clinic, distributing water filters or mosquito nets in remote villages, or preaching the gospel in the streets. Two things are certain. God will use you to express His love to the poor, and you will never be the same again. To learn more about Journeys of Compassion, visit impactnations.org joc. Uh, the second part I want to talk to you about is the Incarnation. And verse 14, I believe, is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. Uh, I find myself, whatever I'm teaching on for years, this verse comes out of me. And I, I almost didn't know why it did. And then over the last year and a half, as I've been studying things like the Incarnation and the Trinity and the Priestess of Christ, I started to say, oh, that's, I think, why I keep coming back to this verse. So let's read it. Verse 14. The Word, the Logos, became flesh and took up residence among us. Some translations say dwelt among us. We beheld His glory... The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is so much in there. That verse, we could probably talk about it for a long, long time. Let me read it one more time. The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This verse is the heart of John's gospel. It is, it, is, it is the beginning and the end of his gospel. It sums up his gospel. But the more I think about it, I think it sums up his declaration of, of salvation history, of all of history. It sums up everything. It sums up creation. It sums up the new creation. Um, God has physically entered human history. And this is known as the Incarnation. We don't talk a lot about the Incarnation anymore. But in, in, uh, in the first thousand years, it was like one of the most central things that was talked about, debated, written about, argued about. Um, the Incarnation is at the center of life itself. That's what the Bible is telling us. Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is at the center of life of the whole meaning of all life, uh, which is a pretty big statement. So without going too far into this truth, because we could go a long time and it could get a bit dry, um, I want to give you a quick overview of what the Incarnation means. Okay, John was declaring that Jesus is the full revelation of God. There is nothing else to know about God than Jesus Christ. Uh, the Nicene Creed. Do you guys all know about creeds? It's the Apostles' Creed. There's a variety of them, but probably the most important creed is the Nicene Creed from the 4th century. And uh, it states, it's a long creed. I've actually got it. I, I read it through it sometimes in my morning prayer. But here's the phrase about the Incarnation. The only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. The doctrine of the Incarnation 
expresses the mystery that Jesus Christ is at one time fully human and fully God. And uh, this union of God and man is an actual physical union of two natures. It's, it's not just a, a spiritual union. In fact, th this issue became huge. Uh, some historians, as I've read, say that the issue of the incarnation and the true nature of this, of the, the, the two natures in Christ, uh, was a bigger, more volatile issue than even the Protestant Reformation, which is kind of hard for us to get our heads around, but that's how big it was for centuries. So, the incarnation says that it... This union of God and man is a physical union of two natures so as to make one person with two natures. Christ did not set aside his divinity in order to come dwell among us. And I, I'm so insistent on that. And we can talk about that at other times, but one of the, one of the really interesting passages for me is uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Anybody cares? It's called the kenosis, the emptying. He emptied himself, but he did not stop ever uh, being fully divine. In the first centuries of the church, many pushed against this full unity of two natures. It, it was like this truth and tension, and it created all kinds of different views, and some of them spun right out to become heretical. Uh, Gnosticism, which denied the full humanity of Christ. And well, he wasn't really, he just was like an image of that, but he wasn't really because he was God. Um, and, and that rose up, by the way, that was rising up strongly when John wrote the prologue, wrote this gospel. He was writing it in part to come against Gnosticism. But something else called um, Arianism denied the full divinity of Christ. They said, well, he was God's representative. He is what we could be with perfect obedience and revelation, but he wasn't God. So, and those went on for centuries, folks, and variations of those, so many variations, because trying to hold this thing together, that at one time in one person, he is completely man and completely God, uh, has been very challenging, or was really challenging in the, in the early years. Um, the early church gathered uh, on, on three occasions to debate what the scriptures teach about the incarnation. So, that's, that's just telling you what I mean when I use the word incarnation. Does that make sense to everybody? Any questions on that? Fully God, fully man. And some of you are thinking, what's the big deal? Why does this matter? We'll get to that, I hope. Um, so let's look a little bit at, at this John 1.14. Uh, the Word became flesh and took up residence or dwelt among us. The Word literally doesn't say that at all. It means tented among us or tabernacled among us. But that just has no context for us in the 21st century. So they write it, dwelt among us, took up residence. But tabernacled or tented. So let's look at why he said that. He, uh, the word uh, became flesh and he put up his tent among us. This, John's again planting seeds about we live as a different kind of people. We live as pilgrims. 
We live like the people of Israel who were fluid and moving and following the cloud. Um, other New Testament writers pick up this theme. First Peter is a classic when he's addressing uh, the five churches in Asia. He addresses them as pilgrims, as sojourners, recognizing that our real home is in the heavenly Jerusalem. All of that is in any tabernacle or tent to put up his tent among us. And among us, even that phrase says something. It says, he's saying again, he became one of us. He wasn't God kind of like us. He fully became one of us. And by referring to the tabernacle, he tabernacled among us. John is telling us that, that the body of Jesus Christ, the word becoming flesh, is now the new locality of God's presence on earth. See, the tabernacle, you guys probably remember in, in Exodus 33 especially, we see the tabernacle was the place. And, and God tells Moses how to lay it out. And, you know, Leviticus lays it out and Exodus lays it out. And, and it's so that the Shekinah glory would be there. Remember, Moses would go and his face would shine. That was the place of the presence of God. <coughs> well, what John is saying with one little phrase is it now Jesus is the new locality of, of God's presence on earth. Jesus is the replacement of the ancient tabernacle and its fulfillment. He is the totally concrete embodiment of the nature of God. See, we live in a time, and, and if, you, if you want to know why, it's, it's about Platonism. We live in a time where we've been so influenced by ancient Greek thinking that heaven is an ethereal place, the spirit is an ethereal thing. And John is shouting. He's saying, no, Jesus came in the flesh. God is in the flesh. And the implications are huge. And they are not ethereal. And they're, they're not Platonism in any way. So, um, he goes on to say, that's just the first half of verse 14. He goes on to say this. We observed his glory. John saying, I'm an eyewitness. I watched it. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I know we're all aware of these verses, but I want tonight for us to see how much gold is in every one of them. Glory is introduced here for the first time in this gospel. The word, by the way, is doxa. That's where we get doxology from. And... Uh, and John will use the word ten times strategically throughout his gospel about glory. I love one of a favorite verse for years for me is when what Jesus says to Martha uh, before Lazarus is raised from the dead. He said, "Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God?" It's the glory. Remember, if you've got a good memory, back several weeks ago when we did chapter two. And the, uh, the, the party, remember? The first place he took them to was a party. And, uh, and what John says is this was the first time his glory was revealed. Isn't that interesting? We kind of think of, you know, like, you know, blue spotlight and woo-woo and stuff for glory. It's just, he made water into wine at a party. And this was the first time his glory was revealed. John insists that there's nothing ethereal about this gospel. 
Didn't I tell you if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? He, in that uh, priestly prayer I mentioned earlier, John 17, 24, he says to the Father, they will see my glory, which you have given me because you've loved me before the world's foundation. A real high water mark in Israel's history is in Exodus 33. Uh, 32 and 33 and going into 34 where where Moses is kind of uh, intervening on behalf of the people of, of Israel because they've blown it and then in the midst of this interchange there's so much in there Moses says this in, in chapter 33 he says oh God show me your glory how many songs have there been about show me your glory right and how many times have we longed to see the glory of God come? Well, he says, okay, I'm going to pass by. And, uh, and when he does, he reveals his covenant nature. By the way, I only found out last week. This is just an aside. Remember, uh, as he passes by, he says he got to see his back. He got to, remember that, his back. Well, yeah, that's one translation, but there's another that means he got to see where his glory had just been. Interesting, huh? Isn't that interesting? Um, so, as he passes by, God reveals who he really is. He says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth. Remember that? Exodus 32, 6. He says, The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth. Pay attention to that. Gracious and rich in faithful love and truth. What did John just tell us? He said, We observed his glory, the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son embodies these great covenant values, the nature of God that revealed to Israel. Israel has longed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Show us your glory, show us your glory. The last time we really see that is when the temple is completed, 1 Kings 5. And then the glory of God came and the, and the priest couldn't minister. Remember? John is saying the glory has come. He's personified. He's tangible. You can touch him. We observed his glory. He's saying that Jesus is the revelation of God's glory that Israel for so long had longed to see. Isn't that interesting? He's saying some profound things, folks. Profound things. And then he uses that phrase again, full of grace and truth. In verse 17, because he says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, for the first time in the prologue, we learn that the Word, who is God the Son, has a human name. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. First time his name is mentioned. Has a human name. What does that do? That anchors the Son of God in human history. We're back to being tangible and not ethereal. Okay. 
so that's a, a quick look at what the incarnation is. But now I want to I want to just go a little bit longer and ask this question: What difference does it make? Why does the incarnation matter? In fact, I would say, why is it so centrally important? Well, first of all, <coughs> the incarnation tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, right? When the Word became flesh, God could never again be understood as an abstract or distant or even faceless deity. He came and tabernacled among us. We cannot have a distant God because of the incarnation. Secondly, and I really think it's so important for us to get this, um, Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. He is not just one facet of God. God did not become Christ-like when, when Jesus was incarnated. This is who he has been from all eternity. And there is no aspect of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is not revealed in who Christ is. He is exactly like the Father. Exactly. The incarnation means that this eternal trying relationship, three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that this eternal relationship has now come to earth. The Trinity is huge, folks. We, we may get to there later in this series, but it is huge. And I think that we are primarily not very Trinitarian as 21st century evangelicals. Um, if the Trinity is taught on, it's usually taught separately. You know, you teach on the Father, you teach on the Son, you teach on the Holy Spirit. And yes, of course, that's an aspect of it. But there's so much more. It's this interrelationship. I talked about John's planting seeds, about the communion that the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit have. So I'm going to review that a little bit. Uh, when the Word became flesh, when the Incarnation happened, God could never again be understood as an abstract or distant deity. Secondly, Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. He is exactly like the Father. And the Incarnation means that the eternal triune relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has now come to earth. He did not stop being in the Trinity when he walked the earth. He was still in the Trinity. <coughs> Pardon me. Thirdly, and I've stressed this because I'm convinced that we've, we've missed this truth to, to a reasonable degree, and I know it varies from church to church, but Jesus did not come as the Father's representative. He revealed the Father, of course. He talked about the Father uh, so many times. I was looking at it this week, and I, I think I lost count at, at 64 times in John's Gospel. He talked about the Father, of course. But he talked about the Father in the context of knowing Him, of being in this close communal relationship. 
So here's the thing where I think we've missed it. Jesus did not come as a smaller version of the Father or a smaller version of God. We have imagined and preached too small a Christ, and a smaller Christ means a smaller gospel. I, I absolutely insist on that, and I have for years. I think the gospel is much bigger than we think it is, and it's because Christ is much bigger. And the implications, the mystery through all eternity, we will never plumb the depths of Christ. Fourthly, since Christ came as fully God, then while he was walking on the earth, he was at the very same time holding all of creation together. Uh, I had uh, the church I preached at this week, I had everybody read some of Colossians and verse 17, and by him, that is Christ, all things hold together. All things hold together. Well, as we read of him healing the sick, as we read of him feeding the 5,000, as we read of him <coughs> teaching the Sermon on the Mount, at the very same time, he was orchestrating all of the activity of the cosmos. Who is this? How big is this Jesus? Fifthly, the Incarnation is the eternal union of man and God. He didn't just become two natures in one person and then when he went to heaven, that dissipated. <coughs> Pardon me. For all eternity, the Son of God, the, the second person of the Trinity, for all eternity, he is one of us. He became human, and He will remain human. There is a man in the Trinity right now. It's, it's mind-boggling to me. And, and, and it has everything to do with, uh, with the invitation. What we're called into is so much higher than we think. Our eternal destiny is to be part of that Trinity, of the activity of the Trinity. Um, it's just huge. Well, we're on the home stretch. And um, some of you know that I wrote a series of articles uh, called Unsearchable. If anybody's interested, you can look on our website, uh, impactnations.org. And uh, I thought I would finish by something that I wrote because I kind of took a little bit of a different direction on the Incarnation. You can take a hundred directions. This is huge. The water is deep in the Incarnation. But I, I want to finish by just reading the last uh, couple of paragraphs from the article I did on uh, what I believe is, is the center of the mystery of Christ. The Incarnation, as I said earlier, John 1.14, it, it, uh, it encompasses the beginning and the end. Uh, the, the total purpose of God and the total purpose of creation. So let me finish with this. In becoming human, Jesus entered into our fall, fallen existence. Okay? He became human, folks. He didn't come human, but stayed back. Aloof. Right? We all know folks that are aloof. I, I, sometimes you'll meet, I, I met a, a famous author a little while ago, and he writes so 
wonderfully and inclusively, but his, his, when I met him, he was kind of aloof. You wouldn't get close to him. But Jesus was the opposite of that, okay? And therefore, he entered into our existence. He entered into life as we know it. I've said to you before that, that uh, he, he, part of his incarnational reality is that he identified with the poor, with his whole life. He was born into the servant class. He was born to someone who, who wasn't married, and so the whisper, you know, all of his life. He was a political refugee when he was two years old. He had to run for his life. His dad had to take him. Joseph had to take him to, to Egypt, so he identifies with them. He was homeless. Uh, Luke 9, you know, the, he's, even the foxes have a place to lay their head. The Son of Man has no place to call his home. He was, and on and on and on. He was not a Christ whose stained glass, who speaks in wonderful holy ways. No wonder the first place he took his disciples was to a party. To a party. And he didn't say, well, listen, let's just have a prayer meeting here. He said, let's party. John is telling us something. Because remember, as I've told you again and again, John says at the end of this, he says, these are just examples. If I wrote everything he said and did, I suppose the whole world wouldn't contain it. He picked certain things. And I want us to understand, he entered into our fallen existence. In the incarnation, Jesus brought together the triune life of God in all its purity and joy and righteousness and fullness and human existence. That's, that's the God part. But the other, no wonder, no wonder the church wrestled in trying to understand this. Because he also brought together the human existence with all its brokenness and fear and corruption and disease. Jesus entered into our condition. He didn't stand back and point at it. In the prologue, we didn't go to verse 5 because of time, but the light shone in the darkness. Not at it, in it. He ran into the darkness. So he identified with us with our brokenness, our fear, our corruption, our disease. He entered into our condition. But he was never tainted by it. Light conquered darkness. This is how he conquered. Without the incarnation, God could look upon our condition with compassion. But in the incarnation, he joined us in our failure and our alienation and our darkness. But he never yielded to them. This is why, for me, I insist that he did not just go to the cross for our sin, he went for our brokenness, our failure, our disappointment, our pain. He took all of those to the cross. <coughs> he fully entered humanity and participated in humanity, but he refused to live his life as anything but the Son of God. This is why the Apostle Paul calls Christ the last Adam. While the first Adam yielded to temptation in his desire to be like God, the last Adam was God, who became man in order to defeat the very powers and temptations that defeated the first Adam. 
A writer I like very much is uh, Baxter Kruger, and he, he wrote this. Jesus stood in Adam's shoes, but refused to be Adam. In the mystery of the Incarnation, this perfect union of man and God lies an infinitely deep and beautiful truth, one that I think is worthy of a, of a lifetime of meditation and adoration. This is the beauty of God revealed. The Incarnation is the beauty of God revealed. This is the beauty that reconciles the whole cosmos. So there's the incarnation in an hour, uh, in 45 minutes, <laughs> quicker than I thought it would be. Any comments? I, uh, well, I've never looked at been able to like even start to understand the Trinity. So it brings it to a perspective that like I know. Like that I can relate to, like, hey, he did, he was human, but still God. I, you know, I fight with that all the time, but I don't know, hearing it laid out like that, it's a lot of information. It's like, I don't know, it brings it a little bit closer. Yeah. Like, he's not some distant guy. No. He's just like us, like, going to a party. You know, he wanted to relate to us, but he was still kind of out of my blood. He stood in Adam's shoes, but he refused to be Adam. Man, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> I think it's really cool that, like, it's no longer I do this, but Christ in me. And, like, to hear, you know, like, Jesus is full on with the Trinity. It's not a little form of God. Yeah. And that's God, like... It's no longer I do the but Christ in me. Like, let's get on with it. <laughs> like, come on, and let's, you know, it's just like, wow, let's get God out of the box that we put him in. You know, Christ is in me. Like, it's like weird because if it's the Trinity and I'm in the Trinity, like, whoa, Christ. I'm in Christ. Yeah. To me, like it just yeah. you could meditate on it until you really just have to go out and share it. I encourage you to, to think about uh, John 14 verse 20. I'm in the Father. You're in me. Yeah. I'm in you. It's he's. Uh, if you look at John, by the way, I think John 14, 15, and, and 16 are absolutely key passages. If I if I was to say I could only have a few chapters, I would take, I think, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, what it means to live in the kingdom, and John 14, 15, and 16, which is extremely triune, and 17. Anybody else? I think uh, when you talked about glory, um, I started saying, well, gee, I've never really studied the Word. Yeah. But there's aspects of it that I hadn't thought about. And one of them is the very aspect of what you were talking about, and that is Christ in me. If the Holy Spirit lives in me, then there is there is something very different about who I am that never was before. And I am not even, I am clueless to to the magnitude of what that potential is. Yeah. And part of that deals that when I do 
an act of kindness or show grace or speak truth that I am revealing because Christ in me is the glory of God. Amen. It makes it entirely different. It just like blew my socks off. Sorry. No, don't be They were fairly famous. There you go. <laughs> Shekinah glory walked in the temple. Mm-hmm. Is that like the Holy Spirit? Yes. Stephen, yeah, if, if the Shekinah glory dwelt in the tabernacle and the temple, uh, Exodus and 1 Kings 5, uh, is that the Holy Spirit? Yes. If you begin to look, you'll see from Genesis 1 verse 2 is the first time we see the Holy Spirit. That as you start to look with... Uh, Trinity eyes, triune eyes, you'll see the movement of this triune God from beginning at Genesis 1 and going all the way through. And now it's so interesting that John is saying the very glory you're looking for has come. And uh, that always fascinates me that this, uh, this first sign, this first miracle is the water and the wine in, in John's Gospel. And he says, this revealed the glory of God. Doesn't that seem somehow so practical and, and down to earth? And that's what he's saying. You see, he's coming against a time where, where the Gnostics, it, part, of, <clears throat> part of this whole thing of, well, he couldn't have been man, he must have been like a manifestation of a man, but he was really just God. But with that also comes this idea that there's extra knowledge, there's this hidden knowledge, that's what Gnostic means, knowledge, that, that there's this hidden stuff. And John is saying, no, the depths of Christ is right here. And there's, there's, there's nothing else that we need to do. And all I can tell you guys, uh, on my journey, uh, now 41 years, is that this book honestly... I, I, I'm as serious as I can be, it gets deeper and deeper and thicker and thicker and thicker. <laughs> and I read it every day for 41 years, you know, well, nearly every day. And, uh, and it gets thicker because, not because of who I am, because of who He is. Amen. The depths of Christ. Any other last comments? Or otherwise, we'll, we'll wrap it up. So let me just encourage you read that prologue. Read Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Read Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Uh, he is, verse 3, uh, in this translation, says that Christ is the exact expression of the Father, which I love that. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again next week when Steve dives into the second half of John chapter 1. In the meantime, don't forget to email your questions to podcast at impactnations.com And stop by impactnations.org to learn more about how the kingdom of God is transforming lives around the world.